1: I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. It is a truth universally acknowledged, that a zombie in possession of brains must be in want of more brains. More brains. More brains. More brains. More brains. More brains. More brains.
0: Yeah, so I am brains. Megan de Brain Molay. Megan de Brain Molay. Megan de Brain Molay. De Brain de Brain Brain... Brain, 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 And I currently work at Winchester School of Art, which is part of the University of Southampton. And what I do there is teach digital media practice. I also do research in historical fiction, um, remix, adaptation, all that good stuff.
1: Remix, mashup, sample, adaptation, parody, homage, knockoff. The lines between these and so many other similar terms are not always very clear. Taking previously created elements of culture and reworking them into something new. In one sense, all culture is a remix, nothing exists in a vacuum. On the other hand, some people may take a dim view of lifting almost the entire text of Pride and Prejudice and republishing it with additional zombie action. The line I opened with, if you didn't recognise it, is the opening to Seth Graham Smith's best-selling 2009 classic, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And Dr. Megan de rennes who you also heard, has spent the last decade researching and writing about this whole field. Remix, adaptation, mash-up novels, or what in her latest publication she calls Frankenfiction.
0: Frankenstein is a hugely overdetermined metaphor. We use Frankenstein for everything, right? We use it Um, We use the Frankenstein metaphor to talk about technology when we're talking about, oh, you know, will artificial intelligence get away from us like Frankenstein's monster?
1: Franken food, Franken storms, Franken mice, Franken shoes, Franken cells.
0: Um, I use the term Franken fiction specifically because it's so broad and I'm kind of poking fun at that phenomenon.
1: So what exactly does Dr. DeBren Molay mean by Franken fiction?
0: What I actually look at in the book is something that in the first draft was called Neo-Historical Monster Mashup, which is obviously much less catchy than frankenfiction. But this is basically commercial fictions that take works that are out of copyright, so works from kind of the 19th century, the 18th century, and bring those together to sell them, basically.
1: Such as, for example, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. But we'll get back to that. First, I want to get a few things clear. Remix, adaptation, mashup. There are quite a lot of terms here.
0: So most most people would have an idea of what adaptation or remix is, I would suspect. But as I was digging into these different terms to try and figure out what I was actually looking at, there's a lot of disciplinary difference um, between something like adaptation and something like remix. So, for example, if you're studying adaptation, it's likely that you work in a literature department or a film department. A lot, not all of adaptation studies, but a lot of it focuses on film adaptations of literary works. And is still a big focus of the field.
1: Maybe I should have a footnote noise. Like if this was an article, there'd be a footnote here. So for more on adaptation, see effect, comma, words to that. Episode 23 on adapting books for the screen and vice versa. Anyway.
0: Whereas if you're studying remix... Or mash-up, you're much more likely to be working in a media studies department. Yeah, possibly a music department, right? Because the terms mash-up and remix both originally come from music studies, which is actually really important to to think about when you're studying these things.
1: From the sampling used so effectively in hip-hop, to a DJ perfectly blending two different tracks, to a song remixed and completely transformed in the hands of a great producer, remixing is obviously a hugely important feature of music. In this case, though, we're talking about fiction, about how we tell stories across all sorts of media.
0: I was trying to come at it from a convergence culture perspective. So this idea that we're not so concerned anymore with the medium that a story appears in because we're used to stories crossing all kinds of different media.
1: So you know how we have prequels to multimedia remakes of adaptations of etc, etc. You get the idea. A book might be adapted into a TV series like, say, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. But then adaptation blurs into original creation, sometimes controversially, when the adaptation gets ahead of the source material. Or you have multimedia universes like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which crosses film and TV, soundtracks, comic book tie-ins and all the assorted multimedia promotional material. Take the character Wolverine, who I'm sure you're familiar with, but from where exactly? Did you read the original comics from the 1970s or his many, many subsequent comic book iterations? Did you encounter him on his own or as part of the X-Men franchise? See him on TV or in film across five decades? Encounter him in a novel, play him as a computer game character, or perhaps even hear him more recently in podcast form? Stories and characters rarely stay in a single medium anymore, and anything can be a source. Toys, from the good Lego movie, to the god-awful Battleships movie. Theme park rides, Pirates of the Caribbean, apps, Angry Birds. I mean, there's an emoji film. And then if it seems like all the major blockbusters in the cinema in recent years have been remakes or sequels, well, that's because they have. Let's do a little audio representation. If we start in 1993 and move in five-year intervals, how many of the top 20 films each year were remakes, sequels or spin-offs? So each ping is the number. So 1993, 2, 1998. 2003 2008 2013 2018 You can probably spot a trend. And actually the top 10 highest grossing films of last year were all every single one sequels, remakes, or comic book spin-offs. But let's get back to the literature.
0: So I have tried to kind of look at the mashup across different areas. So that said, my background is in literary studies. Um, There's certainly a long history of mashup novels. So um, in the 21st century, we definitely have a much higher volume of these kinds of novels. So stuff that I talk about, like, um, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, The Leave of Extraordinary Gentleman, which I guess starts in the late 20th century, Penny Dreadful, Anno Dracula, Kim Newman's Anno Dracula is another really great text. Sorry, I said Penny Dreadful, um, referring to the comic, because actually, obviously, that's a television show. But Penny Dreadful has some written texts as well that we could could look
1: at. It's never easy to pin these down to one medium. So if we've seen an explosion of interest in the mashup text in recent years, where is this coming from? In its literary form? How far back does the mashup go?
0: Um, so going back through the history of the mashup novel, I think there are a couple of different ways you can approach that. So there are lots of novels that are certainly intertextual, and there are lots of novels that you could kind of classify as mashups. They, they appear basically as soon as you get copyright law in the West, right? So for instance, for Sherlock Holmes, um, there are cases where, you know, other contemporary authors took the character, combined them with other characters, and then you get crossover fiction, Right. Which I guess the crossover is another term that we could kind of use if we wanted to add yet more vocabulary.
1: So much vocabulary.
0: The commercial culture is a really important, I guess, part of what we look at or what we don't. What, What do we consider a novel? Right. Is that something that's that people pay for? Is it something that's written not for profit?
1: And this is important because there's a whole world of fan fiction, but what distinguishes it in large part is that it's unofficial. It's not intended to be commercialised, and so it can use copyright material. Although, of course, these boundaries can blur too. One of the most commercially successful novels of this century is E. L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey, originally Twilight fan fiction.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I guess if we're talking about the commercial or the artistic history of the mashup novel, lots of people go back to William Burroughs um, and Dada and things like Cut Up Technique. So if we're talking about professional mashup novels, professional mashup fiction, it's either kind of William Burroughs and the artistic... Data movement.
1: Lots of authors experimented with these types of techniques, particularly in the 1950s, 1960s. You take two pages, for example, fold them in half vertically and then lay them side by side to create something new and unexpected. Or you take a text, you cut it up, and then you rearrange all the words to create a new text. Or you take people go back to William Burroughs and then rearrange the words to create a new text. And I guess all this cutting and pasting brings us neatly to Seth Graham Smith's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, published by Quirk Books in 2009.
0: The myth behind Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is basically that Jason Reculach, the editor at Quirk Books at the time, sat down to try and, you know, figure out Quirk Books' next bestseller. And he sat down with two lists, one of great works of classic literature, one with monsters, and just started drawing lines between the two of them. And he ended up with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, thought, wow, this would be a really fun idea. And then they found Seth Graham Smith to kind of do do it, um, do the remix for them.
1: Little did they realize the publishing monster they had unwittingly unleashed upon the world.
0: So they released the cover image online a few months before publication. Bloggers got so excited about the cover image um, that they pushed up the publication date by three months. They decided to print, you know, a few more copies. So it was basically an internet success based on the cover image before it even became a publishing success, before it was, was released.
1: Within a week of its release, it was number three on the New York Times bestseller list. Studios were knocking down the publisher's door to acquire film rights. Of course, more adaptations. It was a massive success. So for those of you who haven't read the novel, how exactly does it work?
0: In terms of the premise of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, so um, Seth Graham Smith's mashup novel takes the actual text of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So they estimate that it's about 75% Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, um, and then removes a few bits, adds a few bits... Add some zombies, add some plot elements, about 25% of Seth Graham Smith's work. And then together you get Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. So it takes an out of copyright text, Pride and Prejudice transforms it. So if we're talking about transformative works and copyright, you know, the transformation is often really important and yeah, repackages it for sale.
1: So if it's 75% Pride and Prejudice, was it Austen fans looking for a new twist on their favourite novel? Or was it the zombie fans who felt their favourite genre was missing some Regency romance? Well, actually it was kind of both.
0: Yeah, so actually a lot of people talk about it as if it's this thing that was specifically designed to appeal to Jane Austen fans. But actually when the book was first conceptualised or they were trying to, you know, publicise it, get it out there, they definitely didn't publicise it in that way. So they kind of expected a lot more backlash from Austen fans, I guess, than they... Than they received, and there have been some great academic articles about this. Um, sort of how the, the publicity text shifted gears kind of partway through um, the publicity, but I guess it appealed to a lot of Austinites, right? Who often do Austin rereads. So, for fan cultures where there's a culture of rereading, I think it was picked up very gratefully because it kind of gave them a fun angle to take on the next Austin reread.
1: Ultimately, it was just a very good idea, well executed, in the right place, at the right time.
0: Um, It's from that phase where fans were doing it, but commercial culture hadn't quite figured out how to capitalize on this sort of thing, right? So we had auto-generated text, right? We had computers writing text. We've had mashup. We've had um, fan versions of these texts, but no one had really figured out yet how to make money doing that. So... Yeah, I think Pride and Prejudice and Zombies really just struck at the right time.
1: And speaking of striking at the right time, we have reached the perfect place to very briefly tell you about two things. Firstly, becoming a member of the Words to That Effect Patreon. Join today over at patreon.com slash WTTE and get exclusive extras and bonus episodes, including a very special Words to That Effect improv comedy episode which just went up this week. So this was a bit of a diversion from my usual fare but I teamed up with The Fantastic Podcast phoning it in and we made a kind of a literary improv panel comedy episode with three fantastic comedians. I had a lot of fun making it and you can have a listen exclusively on Patreon. So, sign up and join such wonderful supporters as Miguel, Dennis, Brian, Richard, Killian, Frederick, Carol, Jarlath, Ruth, Emma, Brendan, Bernadette, Meg, Harry, Maureen, Dixon, John, Tim, Lara, Frances, Margaret, Julianne, Darrell, Rachel, Jeff, Nick, Neve, Ellen, and Linda. Thank you, all of you, for your kind and wonderful support. Secondly, I wanted to very quickly tell you about another show on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I really think you'll enjoy it. It's great. It's called The Behavioural Vaccine. And in it, comedian and organisational behaviour expert Kate Feeney is joined by behavioural psychologist Porik Walsh to make sense of behavioural science and explore ways that we can use this to improve our health and happiness. So, obviously, behavioural science is a really big part of how we fight coronavirus, but there's loads of really other interesting stuff in this show too. It's funny and it's informative. What market you want? It's great. Have a listen. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Porik, and we host the Behavioural Vaccine Podcast.
0: We're behavioural scientists who met through improv comedy.
1: And so each week, we bring the two things together to explore how behavioural science can be applied, but in a fun way.
0: There's a little bit of research.
1: There's a good bit of messing.
0: And there's loads of practical tips on everything from how to save money to how to maintain your friendships.
1: Think about this like a behavioural vaccine to get you through winter 2020. Go on, sure, give us a listen. So Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, is it any good? Well, it definitely piqued my interest when it came out. Pride and Prejudice is a masterpiece, and who doesn't love a good zombie? So I was definitely intrigued. I remember reading the first page or two in a bookshop when it was everywhere, but then not so intrigued that I actually felt the need to buy it. So I don't know. In researching this episode, I went back and read some more. It's not, in fairness, as I initially thought, a kind of joke that wears thin after a page or two, but I still didn't finish it. I kind of thought it was a bit too much Austen and not enough zombie.
0: I think a lot of people had that comment, and they actually did try to solve that, um, both with the sequels to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and with kind of the next mashup novel that they did, which was Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. So that's much more Ben Winters and less um, Jane Austen. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I think it probably, for me, works better if you have not read Pride and Prejudice, just because I was so distracted going through wondering, oh, does Jane Austen actually say that? So I felt, you know, constantly compelled to look, to compare it to the quote unquote original.
1: Yeah, some of the little inserted parts are great. Like you really want to check how much was actually in the original. So take this, for example. Not all that Mrs Bennet, however, with the assistance of her five daughters, could ask on the subject was sufficient to draw from her husband any satisfactory description of Mr Bingley. His daughters attacked him in various ways, with barefaced questions, ingenious suppositions and occasionally with swords. But he eluded the skill of them all and they were at last obliged to accept the second-hand intelligence of their neighbour, Lady Lucas. I love that. And occasionally with swords is the only part of that that's changed. It just fits really, really neatly. And there are lots of other little moments like that as well. But all of this focus on the original versus the adaptation? It can kind of lead us off track a little bit.
0: Generally, we assume that the older text, or the, you know, what we often call the original text, is the most important one, is the one that should be honored. If it's older, it's better. Um, and this is definitely something I found interesting when looking at Franken fictions or monster mashups or mashups in generally. Because on the one hand, you would think that they challenge this idea. But on the other, in many cases, the mashup text is only popular because of the way it uses a famous author, a famous text, a famous character. So when we're talking about what it is permissible to do legally and ethically, um, emotionally, to a, a text, to a famous text, to a canonical text that's one thing to consider. But I also, I guess I want to think about it, not just in terms of an original text that is copyright protected, and that is good. And another text that's relating that, to that either lovingly or carelessly or stealing it, because that's, that's a really simplistic way of looking at it in some perspective. Um, so obviously, anytime we make anything, We're making it within this bigger framework. We're making it to fit within a particular genre based on our knowledge of that genre. Um, Any adaptation is not only referencing an original text, but it's referencing all of the other adaptations that came before it. Right. So with Pride and Prejudice, when we talk about the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice, we're relating it back to Jane Austen, but also back to the 1990s miniseries. Right. We're always comparing things to each other.
1: Everything draws on everything else. Everything has a cultural context. I mean, that's basically what I've spent 45 podcast episodes exploring. And Ashup's really foreground this. They get us thinking about how this influence and appropriation and stealing and borrowing and remixing really works.
0: There's also the fact that it's not just kind of a one-directional thing that's going on, right? We're in conversation with other people we're borrowing from from different things simultaneously. And I think that often gets overlooked. So I think that's one reason that mashups are really helpful because they don't let us make that kind of simplistic analysis, um, the one-to-one analysis.
1: The question of who owns what doesn't necessarily have a simple answer.
0: I mean, or yeah, or it does, I guess, because you could say if it's in copyright or protected by an estate, then you can't do anything irreverent with it. If it's not, then you can. But then, of course, already whose texts are worth protecting, whose texts are canonised, you know, often it's the same group of kind of white Western um, men. So already the ethics are are complicated.
1: And if you're convinced, there's plenty more Franken fiction out there. Kim Newman's Anno Dracula novels or the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's graphic novel series, which is great not so great is the film version, which, fun fact, was a film that sadly now late Sean Connery hated working on so much that he quit acting forever.
0: Uh, More recently, Theodora Goss's um, Athena Club novels. So that's starting off with The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, which is about the the monstrous daughters of a lot of different mad scientists. So you've got Justine Frankenstein um, and Mary Jekyll and all of this kind of stuff. But I think if I were suggesting that people dig into the mashup genre in a little more depth, especially the literary mashup genre, it's worth kind of looking at some of the the less well-selling of these different kinds of of mashups. So for instance, in addition to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, you had um, Jane Slayer by Charlotte Bronte and Sherry Browning Irwin, right? And this was published by Simon & Schuster, so a different publishing house But Sherry Browning Irwin is also a romance novelist. So in approaching this kind of classic gothic text, Jane Eyre, she does some really interesting things. She makes some kind of more in-depth changes to Jane Eyre and is also very clearly engaging with feminist discourse, post-colonial discourse, um, and yeah, popular fiction discourse um, in some ways that I don't think some of the more popular texts necessarily do.
1: There's plenty to be cynical about with mashup novels take almost all of an out-of-copyright literary text, throw in a few supernatural beings and hope for the best. But there's also so much scope to be original and creative while remixing what's come before, to use satire and parody.
0: I think it's important not to understate the importance of being playful with texts, right? Because parody and satire are such important tools for kind of coping with our canon, coping with our past making sense of it, reminding ourselves of it again, reminding ourselves why we love it or actually why we don't need it. So I think as kind of a playful commentary, it's a really interesting thing.
1: Mashup novels are nothing new and there will be plenty more to come. And the best of them will force us to think about our canon, about how cultural influence works, about how we constantly reframe historical and literary context. And they'll maybe even make us pick up a classic novel we never got round to reading is the truth universally acknowledged that a classic novel, beloved by all, must be in want of some supernatural beings. That's it for another episode of Words That Effect. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for being so patient as I got together this new season. I finished the last season in a very different world. Things have changed unrecognisably and listening to podcasts has been one of the things that has brought me so much joy and relief and calm over the last seven months or so. So I thought I'd better try to contribute to some of that and get some new episodes out into the world. And what better way to kick things off than Zombies and Jane Austen? So a very special thanks to my guest this week, Dr. Megan DeBren-Mollet. I would highly recommend that you check out her book, Gothic Remixed, Monster Mashups and Frankenfictions in 21st Century Culture. I've put links to that and to her blog and other work all on the WTTE website, which is WTTEpodcast.com. There you can also find a fantastic trailer for Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, um, which I didn't really have time to talk about, and links to sources, further reading and lots more. You can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Words to that effect, or follow me on Twitter at cedreed C-E-D-R-E-I-D. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash W-T-T-E. And that's it. See you in two weeks for the next episode.